Hey guys, welcome to episode 113 of the True Crime Couple podcast. I promise you that John is here this episode. However, due to some family issues, we're going to release a podcast episode from our Patreon page. And I think that this is perfect. So everyone can kind of get a taste of what a Patreon episode is like. And you get a spooky kind of story for the month of October. We cannot wait to hear what you have to say about the DeFeo murders. Hey guys, welcome to episode 43 of a True Crime Couple Patreon podcast. I'm Kay. And I'm John. Just want to let everybody know that we had to do this like four times now in the intro. Yes, because John keeps laughing at every... I try to do something new and fun with Patreon and then he just laughs at me. (laughs) You know what it is? It's just... I don't know. You know, I don't even know what it is. I don't know why I'm, why am I so like giddy today? Is that the word know. giddy? I guess so. I, I, is, what do you call that? You're I, drinking a margarita. That's you know what? Why. Maybe that's what it is, which is very, <laughs> a very rare occasion, I might add. Someone did mention to us, um, they brought up when it was margarita day for you to know. You Really? Yes. Well, that's probably because you tell them that when I drink tequila, I become tequila John, which is like, it's like an alter ego kind it's of thing. It's a whole different personality yeah. that comes out. Oh, yeah. Out. Well, I'm glad he's going to be here on this episode. He might be. He just might be. You're about two sips in, so I, you're there. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what it is about tequila, guys. I have no idea. It's it's an upper. It's a totally different effect on you. It makes me really happy. But is that a bad thing? Am no, I going to want... <laughs> it's great. It's good. I mean, too too much of a good thing is bad, but I think you're at the right amount. I think so. <laughs> because as soon as we're done recording, he's going to go to sleep. Probably. And I'm going to have to edit this episode. You you might have to do that. <laughs> you, uh, how strong did you make these? Well, I will say there's tequila in the mix already, and I added some. Okay. What? Okay. I like my margarita strong. All right. Well, we're going to do it the best we can. Okay. Well, you know where we're going? To Long Island today. My favorite place. Not really. It's not his favorite place. It's but not. But it's, you know, we are actually next weekend, we are venturing out to Long Island to visit John's mom. So we will take pictures and report back because we will pass Amityville, Long Island. Oh, yeah. And that's the case we're doing. And I'm actually so excited to cover this because whenever anyone speaks about Amityville, of course, they talk about the haunting. But the case behind the haunting, I think, would be true crime gold but the haunting it always deters everyone because it's so famous but this is a crazy case and i can't wait to cover it yeah uh we're getting started yeah i'll get started relax i'm excited okay are you ready let's do it amityville new york located on the southern shores of long island is not known for its seaside beauty and small town quaintness despite being located in the shadows of new york city rather it's a town that is haunted And it's haunted by a house that sits on busy Ocean Avenue, located right off of Montauk Highway. It is not the ghosts that haunt Amityville, as anyone besides the residents think. It's the memories that surround one of the most grisly crimes that the island has ever seen. The true story behind Amityville Horror House, as most of the country will come to know it as, is more horrifying than any book, movie, or bad sequel could ever be police say the suspect 31 year old jeffrey dahmer has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment we are all evil 
in some form or another, are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. So I just want to let everyone know that I did so much research in this case. I even watched all of the Amityville horror movies that I could find. You would do that. I did. And the sequels were so bad. Yeah, I mean... So terrible. It's just kind of like, where else can you go with it? There was even a movie that came out in 2018 that covered the murders versus the haunting that supposedly took place afterwards, which we will kind of cover because if you know us, you know we love ghost stories. But the movie was horrible and not so accurate. So here we are and we're going to cover the accuracies of the DeFeo murders that took place at 112 Ocean Avenue. Amityville is a historic village filled with colonial and Victorian homes that have beautiful yards and are positioned besides the Great South Bay. The crime rates are low and the people, befitting the town's name, are friendly and all know each other. The village has its own police department and fire station, and it was the perfect place to move in 1965 for a family looking to escape the hustle and bustle of the boroughs that surround it. And I often find that, and of course I've heard this before, it's like an ongoing joke in the tri-state area, but it's the the pattern, the movement pattern of people that live in this city where like if you're in one of the boroughs, you believe like you've made it once you can move to Long Island because like now you're in the suburb life with a yard and then once you retire, you go to Florida. So like that's the natural movement pattern, the boroughs to Long Island to Florida. How do you feel about that as being someone from the boroughs? I mean, I feel like coming living in the boroughs for the short, you know, I don't want to say a short period. I mean, it was like half my life, but I just, I don't know. I feel like Long Island has like, everyone thinks it's just this great place. But in reality, it's like once you go past like a certain exit on the expressway, it's just not what it is cracked up to be. Yeah. So like, I think like, I don't know. I'm not exact, but I'm exactly sure. But I think like once you get like to around like exit 40, like 40, like 40 something, it's like after that, it's just kind of like. I don't know. It's a little bit more desolate. It is a little bit more desolate, and it's actually a lot more affordable than people think. Well, if you think about it, if you were to go the opposite direction and go west, you're talking about, like, really west New Jersey and possibly even Pennsylvania. Like, that's how far out Long Island stretches. But you have to remember, though, too, that Long Island's supposed to be, like, this, like, like ritzy area, which it is. Yeah. But you have to remember... Even homes that are in Queens, even homes that are in the, the like the Bronx or Brooklyn, they got some expensive price tags too. So yeah. like, don't get it twisted. Trust me, there's houses in Queens that could sell for like a million dollars. There's homes anywhere in the in the boroughs that could sell for that much, especially if they're like multiple family dwellings. Right. So like, but the idea, yeah. like Long Island, is like, oh, now you have a backyard it's and a better school system. Fence. Yeah, it's the school system, the white picket fence. Like, even though the houses dream. in Long Island are so expensive especially the ones that are closer in Long Island. So the commute to the city is a little bit better. And that's where Amityville is. It's not too far out. It's it's kind of like perfect distance away where it would be like a half an hour drive to get back into the boroughs. Yeah, but that's not including the traffic that comes with that it. That is not including the traffic. <laughs> See, Long Island, there's not that many ways in or out. Right. So if you have a traffic jam somewhere, you're kind of screwed. 
Well, the thing with the DeFeos is that they are originally from Brooklyn and then they moved to Southern Long Island in Amityville. So the ride, like, I mean, you could take like the Sunrise Highway. It's easier to get from Southern Long Island to Brooklyn than it would be to get to like Queens or Manhattan. But also, remember, we're talking about what, the 60s? Yes. Where well, and then the 70s is when 70s. the crime occurs. So like, you got to think, I mean, it's not as densely populated. Congested either. Right. So, I mean, it's it's a worry now in 2021. Then, no, not even, it wasn't even a thought. But it was so funny when John's mom decided to move from Queens. We were trying to convince her to come to New Jersey because that's where we live. And they were so funny. They were so hellbent on like going to Long Island because that's like the dream, you know, for older generations. I feel like you've made it once you get to Long Island. I guess so. We're we're still trying to we're like New Jersey's not that bad, but you really can't tell someone from New York that. No, New Jersey's you know it's actually wonderful. It's grown on me for sure. Thank you. But I'm still a New Yorker. You're still mad about the jug handles. I do not like jug handles. Hate them. (laughs) They're like there's no purpose for them, but whatever. (laughs) Well, there is. It's safety. Okay, so one of those families that moved from the boroughs to Long Island was the DeFeos. The DeFeo family consisted of Ronald DeFeo Sr., his wife Louise, and their four children, Ronnie Jr., who was always known as Butch, Dawn, Allison, Mark, and John. Big Ronnie, as Ronald DeFeo Sr. was known um, in his Brooklyn neighborhood, was born on November 16, 1930, and Louise Briganti who would later be his wife, was born on November 3rd, one year later. Ronnie Sr. and Louise were both described as being very attractive. Louise even worked as a model before she met her future husband. So when I read that, I thought two things. Like, first, those are the most Italian names I've ever heard. Second, two Scorpios marrying each other. That's rough. They say two Scorpios together are just very passionate, but it's... The passion between the two that becomes destructive. Very destructive. And I think it, you know, Ronnie, big Ronnie has a bit of a heavy hand. So that leads to the destruction of his own family. Mm, Very true. So one thing that is important to know is that the Brigantes, Louise's parents, were not fans of Ronnie DeFeo or him dating their daughter. They did not approve of the two being together, and they certainly did not approve of the marriage that followed their brief courtship. Her relationship with Ronnie DeFeo deeply affected Louise's relationship with her parents. She would not listen to them about dating him and then later marrying him. So when the two got married, her parents actually stopped talking to the both of them, which I'm sure put stresses on a relationship. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But Louise's parents, Michael and Angela Berganti, could not stay away for long once the DeFeos had their first child. On September 26, 1951, Ronald Joseph DeFeo Jr., or Butch as he became known, was born. His parents and grandparents were so excited. For just about five years, Butch was an only child, and those years weren't really the best. By all accounts, Louise was a loving mother, but she was unable to calm her husband's temper. Ronnie Sr. was a violent man, and he wasn't shy about using corporal punishment with Butch. 
Now, I know we're talking about a different time period, but by all those that kind of witnessed the family's relationship, they said that Ronnie Sr. was highly aggressive with his children and his wife. So to be considered highly aggressive in the 1960s means like you beat the shit out of your kids. That's pretty rough. Yeah. Yeah. Many family members witnessed Ronnie Sr. push Butch when he was two at the time into a wall and he hit his head really hard and he had like a minor um, skull fracture from that. And there you see what we always see in true crime, a head injury. Good. Oh, wow. Yeah, good point. I mean, you got to think. I mean, it's a child, two years old. I mean, they're still developing. So, like, everything on them is fragile. I mean, for you to sustain a fracture, like a skull fracture, I'm I'm pretty sure it's probably not even that hard on a baby. Yeah, two years old. I mean, I mean I'm mean, i still saying really probably, young. I mean, you shouldn't have even done that. But I'm saying, like, any little injury on a child, it's, you know, it'll do some damage. They're yeah, it's going to be more severe than if it was, like, a child of 16. Right. I mean, don't throw a child of any age against the wall. No. I mean, that's just... I'm going to go to that end of the argument here. Yeah. But we do see that with... Now, Ronnie DeFeo Jr. is not known as a serial killer by definition. What he becomes is a mass murderer. But we do see that with serial killers, frontal lobe damage. And that's what happened to him as well. We can make the argument that that's what it is. We don't really know. Yeah. But... I mean... The, yeah, much will happen later on, but I mean, it's just a check mark in right. the book of possibilities of things that could have been responsible for what takes place later. So the boy was also slapped and spanked many times in front of family members. And as he got older, the abuse became more violent and more aggressive. In 1956, Dawn was born into the family. And in 1961, another girl, Allison, was born. In 1962, only 13 months after Allison, came Mark. Ronnie Sr. was also very abusive to his other children, but it was Butch and Dawn who bore the brunt of his rages, and that was mainly because they wanted to protect their siblings, and this is according to the family and acquaintances of the family. So Butch and Dawn were known for getting in the middle of Ronnie Sr. beating the younger children. And taking the the beating beside, like instead of their siblings, which is yeah. so sad. Well, I think that like what you're you know, like you're trying to, in a good way. I'm, I don't mean to, I'm not calling you out, but you're trying to create this narrative for what's to come. I'm sure. Correct. Because I kind of I mean I know the story. I I can't. I mean I know this. It's infamous. But you said the whole thing with the fractures, right? And the and the frontal lobe damage. You also have to consider. The physical abuse as a child to a teen at this point, yeah, that that's also a check on the on that list because mm-hmm. there is only a certain amount that someone can take. They're ex- they're experiencing this abuse from an early age. They're now in their what early teens maybe at this point or um at this point yes. So you got to think this has been going on since practically birth, <laughs> you know, yeah. and. Th- this creates lots of issues within someone's mind. The family dynamic within the DeFeos is extremely complicated. And you cannot say that Butch and potentially Dawn, we'll get into the reasons why later, that you can watch your father 
beat you, your mother, and your younger siblings and not be affected by this. Right. And also now now let's also just kind of shed light on the other issue too, which is he is taking it upon himself to get in the middle and wedge himself between other family members and take their abuse so that they don't have to suffer that. Yeah, because you have to realize that Ronnie DeFeo Jr. is older, a lot older than his other siblings. Like the closest sibling in age to him is Dawn, who's five years younger than him. So he finds himself to be responsible for taking the brunt of the abuse. And he's a very fragile child. And what we'll see later on in his life is that he takes that turn that we often see and he becomes the bully and the aggressor outside of the DeFeo family because that is what tends to happen with abused children. They can't take their aggression and their anger out on the person who's causing it for them, his father. So they take it out on people that they can take it out on. Right. Which makes sense. Yeah. Given the dynamic. And we also see that with future serial killers. And that's one of the reasons why we see animal abuse, because this is something that is easily dominated and the aggression gets taken out on the animals. I mean, it's a misconception psychologically to think that it's like, I just want to see what it's like to inflict harm, but it's more of an aggression thing. Right. So we see that with him. It's, it's, it's a textbook case here. Oh, it is 100%. And another thing that is going to add to the complication of this dynamic family relationship is Ronnie DeFeo Sr. continues to be abusive to his wife, even when she is pregnant. And this, very understandably, is a reason why his in-laws continued to get so angry with him. Well, they called this a long time ago before they were married, even. Correct. So. Well, after Mark was born, the young couple, because they still were, split up from each other in 1963. Ronnie Sr. wanted to win back his uh, wife, so he co-wrote a love song called The Real Thing for jazz singer Joe Williams. Um, He was like a popular jazz singer from Chicago. So in what we can only assume as a cycle of abuse, Louise took her husband back. And this is a continued theme that we see with Ronnie Sr. Although he is highly aggressive and abusive to his family members, whether it's his wife or his children, afterwards he showers them with monetary things. Like whether it's giving them money or giving them gifts, that's what he does to kind of like win back his family. And this is a cycle of abuse that's going to continue until their death. I mean, that's the only way that he knows how. I mean, listen, it seems like that's the best thing that you can do because he doesn't know how to show emotionality other than to hit them and abuse them. Yeah. So the only way to get back into quote unquote good graces is to give them things. Yeah. And there's nothing else you could do. (laughs) It's well, yeah, well, that's the mindset of an abuser. So Louise's father is going to intervene at this point. He wants his daughter and his grandchildren to be happy. And of course, back then, they're Italian, they're Catholic, divorce, not an option, especially when you have so many children. So he chose to gift his daughter and his son-in-law a gorgeous 5,000 square foot home in Amityville, Long Island. So he puts the down payment down, a really hefty down payment. 
he actually puts 30% down and they're responsible for the mortgage payments and the taxes afterwards. But I mean, it's when the property was bought in 1964, it was uh, 1965. I'm sorry. It wasn't what we consider a down payment on a house. Right. So it was a lot less. I mean, I wish that, you know, that could happen with us, I right? Know, I know, That'd be great. But we're good. Real estate <laughs> in the tri-state area is insane. And you're actually going to see it with, like, the continuation of this house and how it's sold um, over time. The prices just go up. And then it's even like, okay, you're getting the Amityville house for a deal, but it's still, like, freaking $800,000. So the property was on 112 Ocean Avenue. And... You know what's really interesting is that when people think of the Amityville house and whenever it's depicted in movies or it was discussed in the book that's later written by George Lutz, it tends to be thought of as like this quiet, serene home that's on the water. That's really not the case. Ocean Avenue is an extremely busy street. So busy, in fact, like if you were to go to Amityville and look at the Amityville house, which is actually no longer located at 112 Ocean Ave, they changed the address. It's now 108 Ocean Ave, if you ever want to do a drive by. And it's on a really busy street. You can't slow down. Right. Like it's it's very hard for you to stop and take pictures yep. and look at it plus it actually looks different they've done a lot of work to the house to make it not look like the original home yeah because the you know it's a dutch colonial so it's the house is actually positioned where it's not facing the street it's facing sideways so you see the side of the house from the street and it looked like there were two eyes you know the windows look like eyes yeah, they, they yeah. changed that so it's not as noticeable as it would have been if they kept the old facade of the house so 112 Ocean Avenue's quarter acre lot sits on the Amityville River and it enters into the Atlantic Ocean. And just so you know, fun fact about Long Island, it's considered, and correct me if I'm wrong, to be a little bit more desirable to be located on the southern shores of Long Island. Like you're on the side of the ocean, not the sound. I think you're right. I mean, I'm not, I'm actually not 100% sure, but I think what you're saying is correct yeah. so this house has five bedrooms three and a half bathrooms a boathouse and a slip i mean this is a dream home by anyone's standards especially a family of six with one more child on the way because john hadn't been born at that point um when the family purchased the house in 1965 i mean this is incredible and really, right after they move in, their son, John, is born. And he is the final DeFeo. Also, I think that was the one of the only homes that had a dock with a boathouse. And the boathouse is really big. So, Ronnie Sr. also, at the time, had been working at his father-in-law's car dealership on Coney Island. And he promoted him so he could afford to like pay for the house so at this point michael Berganti like really wanted things to work with his daughter's family yeah it's a really nice dad but now you gotta think like the dynamic is changing so if we were to just take a step aside and think okay defeo is a domineering abusive husband who seems to hate it when he loses control 
Well, now his father-in-law is in control of all of his finances. He bought this house for him that he now is going to have to keep up with. And his job is tied to his father-in-law. He's losing all control of his financial life. You know what? For someone like him, this would be disastrous. But right. for the average person, I, I feel like as long as you were in good standings with your father-in-law, I feel like it wouldn't be an issue. Right. I mean, I don't know. I'm just saying like, like, like for example, if I had to work with your father in the past, I, yeah. I wouldn't, that wouldn't bother me. Right. Because your dad was cool. My dad was like very laid back. Yeah, like your dad, you know, your it dad was awesome. It seems like Michael Berganti is a little bit more involved and has a lot of opinions. And I think that's something that bothered Ronnie DeFeo Sr. So Butch was 14 at the time of the home purchase. Dawn was 11, Allison 3, Mark 2, and John had just been born. Just to give you a time frame as to the age of the children when they moved into the home. So Butch had a difficult childhood, like we were saying. His father was abusive, and at school, he was the victim of intense bullying because he was overweight, something that his peers and father mocked him for relentlessly. And although it seemed like the DeFeos were living the New Yorker's dream, there were a lot of questions to be had. How had the DeFeos been able to afford to buy this house on a carman's salary, and if Anything, you know, like Amityville is a sleepy, small suburban town. So the rumor mills are always going. So it was kind of like the DeFeos never seemed like they belonged in Amityville because it really was a place for the wealthy to be. So they were always kind of on the outside of it all. Do you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, right, you have to say, you know, you're going to have people in your town question, especially people just moving in and stuff, you know, what, you know, how are they able to maintain the lifestyle that we do? Let's just say like, you know, like it, those are questions that pop up no matter where you go, where you are. It, it doesn't right. matter. But there's always going to be a question of how can you afford this house when you look like, you know, you just moved here from Brooklyn. Yeah, that's, that's true. It's just the way things are. And Ronnie Sr., would really stop at nothing to keep up appearances because of this. He liked the idea of portraying this rich lifestyle and giving off this kind of like wise guy Brooklyn bravado. And he did nothing to stop the rumors that were going around that the DeFeos had mob money and mob ties. And that could have been true. I mean, I mean not not with him, but like well, people we'll were... get into it. Oh, there there were. Oh, there were. Yes. Okay. I mean, listen. At that time, though, that's just something that was going to go through anyone's mind, where you look at someone and say, "Oh, they're blue collar. Yes. How are they able to do this? Oh, must be mob affiliate." Nineteen sixties, coming from Brooklyn, going to Long Island, buying a house that seems to be above your means when you're only a car salesman. There's going to be mob rumors. Of course. Just the way it is. So Ronnie Sr. really liked, like I said, keeping up that bravado and his home was a part of it. He even put a home outside the property, naming it High Hopes. Okay. So there it was. Ronnie Sr., his wife and their five kids made it to the golden dream of life in the suburbs, the promised land. On the outside, everything was perfect, but it was hell on the inside of the home. The residents of Amityville seemed to catch on rather quickly uh, regarding the dynamics of the family. 
it was clear that the DeFeos were very different from the other citizens of Amityville. Ronnie Sr. was not that well-liked because he was loud, boisterous, and definitely rough around the edges. But he was not the only one that was having problems in the town. Butch was also having trouble. He was considered to be the bully of the school. And like I said before, this is just something that happens to abused children. The school didn't really have an intense bullying policy, obviously, because we're talking about the 60s and 70s. So that term really didn't exist within the school community. Like it existed amongst the children, but there was no involvement of the school with, you know, with bullying at the time. But the school was aware of the abuse that was taking place with the DeFeos because the children would often go to school with bruises all over their bodies and their faces. Well, that's just a testament to like how far we've come to make things like that be known to, you know, uh, let's say, you know, the, the people in, that take care of that, like whether it be the police, whether it be shop protective services. Yeah, now you have to be a stuff. reporter. Right. Of these so crimes. it just shows our advancement in that. But yeah, like back then, that was something that was, I, I don't want to say acceptable, but just kind of like glossed over. Correct. So as the years went on, Butch got heavily involved in drugs, something that made him lose a considerable amount of weight. And not the best way to lose weight, but a way to lose weight. As he entered into his high school years, he became obsessed with guns, cars, and drugs. The locals at the bar he would go to, remember now the drinking age is 18, um, they said he was amusing, but he was also a loose cannon. You never knew when he was going to go off, they would say. When he was drunk, you worried. And this is what one resident of Amityville said to the CBS um, news affiliate when they interviewed him in 1974 after the crimes took place. So after Butch left high school, the plan was for him to work at his father and his grandfather's car dealership. However, he got into heavy drugs and began taking heroin. He also took acid, LSD, whatever he could really get his hands on. So about two years after high school, Butch was only working at the car dealership one day a week. He was allowed to still live at home during this time, despite the fact that he was always high and around his siblings, who were ages 16 to 6. Ronnie Sr. and Louise supported their son's habit and gave him the cars he wanted, they bought him a boat, and they gave him a weekly cash allowance of $500, which is a lot of money for 1971. I mean, it's a lot of money right now. And... This is another example of Ronnie DeFeo Sr. showering Butch with gifts because at this time, Butch was the one who bore the brunt of his aggressions. So he, whenever he got mad, would beat Butch because Butch would always step in for his mother and for the siblings when abuse came down from their father. Yeah. I mean, that goes back to what we, what I said earlier. It's like that takes a toll of being the brunt of the abuse, like on him. Yeah, and it's starting to because this time, obviously, at his house, a very unhappy time for him. I mean, it makes sense. He is an addict, something no one has ambitions to be, and his father, who hates him, is also controlling his life because that's where he's getting his money supply from. 
So it's making the dynamic even more dysfunctional. So there's just a lot to unpack there. Ronnie Sr. is still continuing to abuse all the children in the house and his wife. And Butch, especially because now he's on drugs, feels a little bit more helpless to all of it because he's not as like quick to defend them and go back at his father as he would have been. And he's also not as quick to intervene any longer because he doesn't want his dad to get mad at him because his dad's also giving him the money that he needs to buy his drugs. You see the problem here? He created a situation where now he can't escape and he has no voice now. Right. Whereas now he's not going to, he's going to hesitate to protect or hesitate to do anything because he's going, oh my God, this guy supplies my money for my habits. So now because my habits are so strong and because I use and do these things, I can't say a word. Right. He can't question his father. His father's his boss, his access to drugs, the money he needs to support his lifestyle. He's just, in a really bad place. And there's no way to escape that at all. And this was reflected by those who knew Butch best. They said that he was fighting with all of his friends, his siblings. He was having multiple run-ins with the Amityville Police Department, as well as police departments in surrounding towns. So, like, life was not good for Butch at this time. This situation went on for about a year and a half. It was also during this time that the atmosphere within the DeFeo house was getting tense. Ronnie Sr. had abused his family for years, shaming and hitting his daughters in front of their friends, beating his sons until they bled, causing many bruises and cuts on the family that the other residents of Amityville pretended not to see. One night at dinner, the entire family was eating, and Butch dropped his napkin from his lap. He bent down to get it, and when he sat back up, his father said, "'Why did you leave the table?' Butch tried to explain to his father what he was doing, but he didn't get the chance. His father ran from his seat and pushed him off the chair and punched him until he was bleeding from his nose and mouth. He stopped and sat back down as if nothing happened and instructed his family to continue eating, which they did in silence as Butch tried to stop the bleeding from his nose. That is like the worst experience that you can have right is that you have to pretend like that's normal and just continue with what you're doing while you just witnessed a family member just get knocked out pretty much and well your brother who's supposed to be protecting you right so now you feel so unsafe yeah and what a what just a what a what a weird like upbringing it's crazy but you know what the saddest part about this whole thing is that we're looking at them but that's probably what happened in a lot of families during this time period because yeah. that's what was like I, normal. Normal. I don't want to say it was accepted, but like it was just it the was way normalized things, to beat your children. Correct. It was just the way that you conducted your family, and the and the husband, the father, was the one that carried that out. Yeah, that's really sad. You know, it is because you don't know you don't realize the extent of the damage that you're doing to not just the one that you're beating up on. Right. But also the ones that are watching that. Right. And I think that like through the generations, things have gotten better because, I mean, that's our parents generation that grew up in the 70s. So like they witnessed that all taking place and they had to go through it themselves. So now when they raised us, they did it without doling out that abuse. And we're going to be better. Like, so I think generationally, we're trying to solve that problem that took place. 
and get rid of like the normalcy of hitting your children. Although some people do think like this is a complicated thing because you never want to tell someone how to parent their children. Some people do believe in a spanking. They just do. Yeah, like, I, I mean, I think But that, there's a difference between beating the shit out of your kids and spanking them. Yeah, like, I know this is kind of personal, but, like, I think that, I think it's okay for me to say that, like, my father grew up in a house that was like that. Right. You know, where it was very abusive from what he explains. But, see, what I'm trying to get at here is that due to his upbringing and the way that he had to deal with that affected another generation which was myself because i feel like we can't like it's all very hard for like let's say like me and my father to connect because of the trauma because of that type of behavior yeah so it's it's actually very interesting but like you know hey listen this is what it was no it's true and we you know? know a lot of things now that we didn't know back then so when it does come to and i'm not a mother yet so like i can't speak 100% to this but we do know as like educators when it comes to doling out punishments to children that you have to give a punishment based on the crime so you can't hit your child for making a mess and then for going missing in a store those are two separate things so that child is going to think running off and making a mess are the same offenses because you're giving them the same punishments for it. And when you put it that way, it makes sense. Yeah. I mean, that's just what it re the reality of it is. Like right? it's the same in the yeah. classroom. Like right. you, you have to decide, okay, what kind of tier of bad this is and what punishment each tier gets. And that's how. Right. And just to clarify like I said that about my father, but it, you know, it didn't really transfer because my father was not abusive to me or, right. or capital punishment, so to speak. Like it yeah. wasn't that way when I was growing up. It was corporal, more of just corporal. corporal. I'm sorry. What did I say? Capital. Like he was going to kill you. <laughs> oh, oh wow. Um, no, definitely, nope, you're still here. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Um, but no, but it is true though that I think that, you know, like my father was a very rare exception where he wasn't violent in any way towards my mother or me. And, you know, yet he grew up in a situation like that. So, Correct. you know, I, I think that sometimes when you're removed, like he he's removed from it. He felt like that's not how I want to do it. So it can be remedied and it can oh, be. Yeah, totally. Yeah, it can be fixed. I mean, there's a difference between because my father was I mean, he had two daughters, so it's totally different. But I mean, his father was so abusive to him and he never. I mean, except for one time, but I definitely deserved it, um, did anything to us. And, but like you said, it does stop an emotional connection. Oh yeah, definitely. It definitely does. But I mean, you work through that and I'm sure yeah, like, like this time. would have been something that might have affected him in his future if oh, he yeah. was to go on. Well, and, it definitely you know. affected him in 1974. <laughs> well, that's, well, that's what I'm getting at here is sometimes it could be, you could fix it before it gets out of hand. And then there's times where it you cannot. Can. Well, I think <laughs> and, when it, in this in this case where it's so bad, I mean, I don't think there is a remedy for the situation. And there is, and I don't touch upon this in like the script that I wrote because I felt like I didn't want to give it any light, but there is disgusting rumors out there that Butch and Dawn, they had a sexual relationship. And that's just 
so disgusting to think. And I, I think what got misinterpreted when the town people of the town and their friends were saying that Butch and Dawn were close, that it meant something more than that. And, and Butch and Dawn were close because they had to be because they were the oldest siblings who were trying to take responsibility for the aggression of their father. Yeah, they also were each other's shoulder in a really messed Correct. up situation. So, I mean, yeah, I, so, 100% you can yeah. write that off. And you don't know what it's like to be in that unless you are yourself. Right. So, so the two of them really connected in that way because yeah. they needed to. Because there's another incident where Ronnie Sr. found out that Dawn had invited a boy over from one of her classes to do homework and study at the house. And when Ronnie Sr. came home from work, he found the boy in the kitchen with his daughter. And he kicked him out and screamed at her for being a whore. And he kept smacking her in the kitchen. Dawn, who was, I can only imagine, tired of her father's treatment of her, her siblings and her mother, she grabbed a knife and was trying to stab her father. So Butch had to run into the room and hold Dawn back because... She was probably going to kill him. And it goes back to what you said, right? About how, you know, um, the whole like punishment, um, you know, like it needs to be meeting the, the, the crime, the crime. Correct. Right. Mm-hmm. So like it's it's built up this this rage. Mm-hmm. It's kind of crazy. Um, well, this is like very an emotional episode, Kelly. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I will say, us. yeah, I will say that this is definitely the norm in this time period. Right. It's crazy. Well, Butch was finally able in that situation to take the knife away from his hysterical sister. And three weeks after this incident with the knife, Butch got into a horrible fight with his father. And we're unsure of exactly what the details are, but Butch does, every time he tells the story, it has something to do with his father beating his mother so he was in the middle of beating the mother and butch called his father a fat fuck and pointed one of his guns at him so like butch was like really into guns so we don't know the situation 100 percent because butch changes his story about it but what we can gather is that he was beating his mother he brought one of his guns into their bedroom and pointed the gun at his father. And okay. he pulled the trigger. But but it clicked. So the, oh so there's no ammunition or it didn't or it misfired. It misfired. Or or it just it was no, a no, dud. It, it was mis- a dud. It, yeah. Well he there was a bullet in the gun. Okay. So but right, it, it just something misfired. Something happened. Which could yeah. happen. And you can see twice now here there's been intent to murder the father by both Dawn and Butch. Right, but like, right. So now you got to think. Right, it, it has escalated to this extent, yeah. and it's not going to stop. And both of these incidents are backed up. They're not just from from Butch because the friend, like these incidents, were relayed to their friends. So the friends recalled Butch and Dawn telling them about this event taking place. Right. So it's it's a little bit more reliable when you have corroborating evidence. So that brings us to 1974. Which was not kind to Butch at all. In September of that year, he had been placed on probation for stealing a motor on a dock in Babylon. 
And in November, he had conspired to steal, this is really messed up, $19,000 from his grandfather's car dealership. I mean, that's not good, but... Your grandfather, like, is holding your family together. Like, you... This is the son we're talking about right now. Yeah, this is Bush. Well, this is most likely because of his drug addiction. I mean, and I think you're right. And I also think I want to add that this drug addiction is also what's fueling his rage as far as pointing guns at him and stuff. Yes. I mean, there's other factors, but being on the influence of drugs is also a big one. I'm not going to say it's the only one, but it's definitely a big one. Yeah. Well, the agreement was that as Butch was going to deposit the cash that his friend was going to rob him and they would split the money. Pretty good plan. Pretty good plan. <laughs> Actually, I'm going to speak about a Okay. This is a little side story here. My father, God rest his soul, love him so much. He used to deliver for a fried chicken place in Clifton, New Jersey, which is actually from episode three. We talked about Clifton. Yeah. So, and that's where I got the case from. My, when I started doing the, the this podcast, my dad was like, do the case, do this case from episode three. So he was so excited to hear it. Was it three or two? No, it was three. Um, with the murder from Clifton. Three, it was three. Was You're right. Yeah. You're right. So, and my dad was even nervous. He's like, should we do it? Like, what if the mob does something? I'm like, dad, the mob is like not real anymore. <laughs> but wasn't he so nervous? Uh, he was us? He was nervous, but I, I assured him that it wasn't going to, no, you know, that it's we not would, a big There deal. would be no retribution for the true crime couple. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> he was delivering for like this fried chicken place in Clifton. And he had to do a delivery, like the bad part of town in Patterson. And he got robbed at gunpoint and he gave the guy all the money that he had on him. But there was like a wad of cash in his glove compartment, like his, and he kept it. And he said he got robbed for it all. Hey, listen, you gotta, do, <laughs> you know, you gotta do what you gotta do, I Isn't guess. Isn't that such like a Scott move? Yeah, it's a Scott move. <laughs> yeah, no one's gonna know. All right. Anyway, so this it's basically kind of like the same thing. Like he's going to claim he was robbed, but he's taking the money. Right. Right. So Butch was questioned by police for this event that took place. Cause, I mean, because we're not talking about a couple hundred dollars. We're talking about nineteen thousand dollars. So Butch caved under questioning. But uh, his grandfather did not want to press charges because he obviously loved his grandson and he knew he was going through, like you said, a hard time with his drug addiction. So he kind of let it go. So Butch didn't get into any problems. But you have to think that had to have been at least two, like a week before the events of the crime take place, because the crimes that go down at 112 Ocean Avenue happened on November 13th. So if Butch was questioned by police and this fake robbery took place in November, it had to have been a few weeks before. Right. So I think that speaks to Butch's desperation as well. Well, it does. I mean, like I said, you're, well, if you're addicted and you need, you need money, you need to buy these drugs, you'll go to any extent to get them. It's like, People think like, oh, that's not in his personality. Yeah, but you don't know a person when they're under the influence of drugs and they literally have not gotten their fix. They'll do anything. It's true. Okay, so now we get to the night in question. On the morning of November 13th, Butch got to his grandfather's car dealership at 6.30 a.m. 
you know, like he he actually had been for the last couple of days, like going to work. So people thought he was turning things around. But I think it was more to leave his house than it was to get him motivated to work. You know what I mean? Because he was deep in his addiction at this point. I think he was trying to do this to please his grandfather because he had just, I don't know, tried to steal $19,000. Yeah, I'm sure there was a little bit of guilt, you know, about that. And that's why he showed up early. But like, yeah, you're right. And um, so November 13th was a Wednesday, so it was pretty slow at the car dealership. So Butch chose to leave the dealership early that day. Once he got back into Long Island, he drove to a friend's house. They drank a little bit and then they chose to go to a mall in Massapequa. It's just like always what kids in the suburbs do. Nothing to do. Mall in Massapequa. I mean, I could totally relate. <laughs> I mean, I went to the same mall that was there was never anything to do. And I never had any money to buy anything. But you know what? I went there. Me too. That's what you always did. We actually (laughs) took a bus to the mall. And I still remember. It was the 197. It would take us to Willowbrook. Really? Yeah. So whenever I see the bus and it says like 197, I think, oh, that was 14-year-old me. 14-year-old you being bored? Yeah. And probably like, why did my parents let me do that? You know what? That's a good question. (laughs) So um, I think my dad was just proud of me that I knew the bus schedule. (laughs) Knowing your dad, yeah, you're probably right. Um, So they went to the mall and there they walked around. They got food. But it was also at the mall that they got a bag of heroin. Not something we did at the mall. No, definitely not. (laughs) So after shooting up in his car, Butch and his friend drove around and they ended up at Henry's, which is a bar that was located down the street from Butch's house. So Henry's was, because it doesn't exist anymore, because um, I will say that in high school, I was somewhat obsessed with ghost stories and like weird New Jersey and like stuff like that. So uh, when we were able to, we were like, oh, let's go to henry's which was the bar that butch defeo was at and then you know came back to and reported the murders so we're like oh let's go to henry's and drink when we turned 21 because me and my friends were freaking weirdos and it was closed so we were so upset oh okay yeah but you said you you were like because we were weirdos yeah we're so weird still are weirdos still are still (laughs) currently present time freaking weirdos so it was in like a strip mall, but it was located at the corner of Merrick Road and Ocean Avenue, two really busy streets. And Henry's was uh, in that kind of like strip mall. So while at this bar, Butch DeFeo had several drinks. Don't forget, he is coming off of a high. And he spent his time there talking to the regulars. And while at the bar, he asked to use the phone several times. He told his friend, Bobby Kelsky whom he had been drinking with and, you know, might have been using drugs with, allegedly. I don't want to say anything bad about Bobby. He told Bobby that he tried to call home, but nobody was answering. And he did mention to him, like, I've been trying to call home all day, but nobody's been picking up the phone. So Bobby was made aware of this. He eventually said he was going to head off early to go check on his family. And he paid his tab and left. At 6.30 p.m., very shortly after he left, we are still unclear, and this would, I feel like, 
helped me so much. Like people always ask, like, what kind of answers do you want in true crime? This is one of the answers I want. How much time elapsed between Butch DeFeo leaving Henry's, finding his family murdered, and his return to Henry's? Like, we don't know how much time passed. That bothers me. True. I mean, I think that bothers everyone in every single case, no matter what, right? Like, we we like to have a time... Like, we want to know the time so we could build a timeline. I love timelines. Yeah, me too. They keep me very structured and on point. Yes, that's the history teacher in me too. Timeline, timeline, timeline. Well, I'm not a history teacher, but I still do like to have the structure. (laughs) A good timeline. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So, we just know it's only referred to as a very short time after... Butch DeFeo left Henry's, he ran back into Henry's, and he was hysterical and crying. And this was at 6.30 p.m. He grabbed his friend Bobby and said, you have to help me. Someone shot my mother and father. That's all he says. Bobby and other men that were drinking at Henry's packed into Butch's car and drove the two blocks to his house. I always hear people joke like, oh, why didn't they just walk? Have you ever been in November in Long Island? It's freaking cold. I mean, wait, actually, better point to make. If it was only two blocks, you can guesstimate the amount of time, right? Of like the driving and stuff. Well, we don't know. So we'll get into this. Hold on. Don't steal my thunder. I, I don't want to steal your thunder. Okay. So once they pulled into the gravel driveway, Butch said that he didn't want to go back in the house. He wanted to stay outside. But the other men did go into the house. They went right upstairs and entered the first bedroom where Butch said that that's where his parents were. So you have to think Butch is implying the fact because when he ran back into Henry's, he said, my mother and father are dead. He doesn't say anything about his siblings. So he drove there two blocks, went into the probably called like, where are you guys? No one answers. Goes into his parents' bedroom, dead, leaves two blocks back. If that's what he's saying. I mean, we know later what he admits to, but we'll get into that. Okay. But he's, but remember his words were my mother and father were shot. He's, he didn't say, some people report that he said, Everyone's dead. He didn't. He said, my mother and father have been shot. Okay. I'm going to keep that in mind. So in the master bedroom, they found two adults lying on their stomachs in bed. Ronnie Sr., 42, had two bullet wounds in his back. And Louise, 42, was laying next to him, but she was under the covers. And she was also shot twice. At the sight of the couple, the men ran downstairs. One of the bar patrons, Joe Yeswit, called 911 using the house phone in the kitchen. Another man, John Altari, ran back upstairs to check on the children. In the bedroom, to the left, he found the room of Mark and John. The boys were 12 and 9, respectively. They also were lying on their stomachs, still tucked into their sheets. They had a single gunshot wound to their backs. He ran outside of the house and told them that there were two more victims in the other bedrooms. By this time, a police officer from the Amityville Village Police was at the scene. He was told by the men 
that went into the house that they had seen four victims in total. Butch's parents and two boys in another bedroom. They were all lying face down in bed and had been shot. This is when Butch told the officer that he also had two sisters. Before going into the house, the officer called in the crime. He was definitely going to need help with this one. As he went bedroom to bedroom, the story of the barman had been confirmed. A couple was dead in their master suite. Two boys were together in one room, both dead. He then moved to another bedroom. It was empty. This was Butch's room. Then he went up to the final bedroom and found the girls. The house is actually three stories and the girls were on the third story. Dawn, 18, and Allison, 13, were in their beds, also face down. But they had been shot in their heads. As soon as the murders were called in by the officer at the scene, the first precinct from the town of Babylon was called. The Amityville police only handled misdemeanors because they were such a small department. But once the Babylon police got on the scene, they realized that this, too, was also too much for them, and they called the Suffolk County Police Department. The arrival of all three departments happened within 15 minutes of the crime, being called in from the initial responding officer. So I think the response was phenomenal. Oh, yeah. I mean, for 1974, 15 minutes. Because you got to think like it's there's not there. There is no congestion of highways and streets yet. <laughs> you like know? what's happening? What else is happening out on the island? Nothing. You know? <laughs> Nothing at all. As the six detectives surveyed the scene, they noted that all members of the family had been sleeping when they were shot. However, there were some evidence and I can't for the life of me. Find and I hate when true, I hate when true crime podcasts say this and they can't find evidence, but I can't find what specific evidence from a reliable source determined the fact that Louise DeFeo and Allison DeFeo had been awake when they were shot. I can't find it. I've heard that before. Me too. But then when I look at the crime scene photos, they're just as tucked in bed as everyone else. Can I tell you what it reminds me of? And I know obviously different weapon. I, I'm not gonna. I'm not yeah. gonna steal your I know thunder. Where you go. I know where you're but I'm going. gonna. I'm just gonna make an anal like an analogy. Mm-hmm. Not an, I shouldn't say analogy. No, it's I'm an sorry. analogy. It's I an analogy. Know. but It's also a comparison. Like, okay. think about the um, Velisca Axe murder house, right? Correct. There were, I believe, there were mentions of like maybe one or of them woke up during the commission of the crime. Correct. No, but there's but there's physical evidence. And photographic evidence that shows that they woke up. That they might have, one of them might have woke up. Like when you look at the DeFeo crime scene photos, which there are a lot of, they're in bed, tucked in. Like, if anything, I would think that Ronnie DeFeo Sr. was the one who was up because he's not tucked in sheets. Yeah. Louise is under the sheets tucked in. Like, she, I don't know what evidence was that. She was awake. Yeah, I don't know either, but I would. Uh, the one thing that always gets me with both of the my comparisons is that whether it's an axe, a gun, whatever, it doesn't matter. You would think that one would wake from hearing, especially a gunshot. I agree with you. An axe. I mean, 
you know, unless unless the person's getting literally one sh- like hitting, you know, one shot at one time, right. and that's it, they're dead. Then fine. But like if they get hit and they're awake and they wake up to getting hit, I don't know. I'm just saying that, especially with a gunshot. We're gonna get into that. Yeah, how to weird me, it is. very strange. Which yeah. makes me think that there's more to it than just someone going in there and shooting them with a gun. I agree with you. So a police command center was set up in the kitchen of the home and Butch and the men who arrived at the scene with him were questioned as the scenes were processed around them. Louise's father arrived at the scene in hysterics. The police calmed him down and questioned him in the kitchen as well. He told police that Ronnie Sr. had told him that the family was getting strange phone calls recently and maybe they were related. At 7.45, the police command center was moved to a neighbor's house, and Butch was taken in for formal questioning as he was the only surviving member of the DeFeo household. When they left the house, the crime scene analysts began to process the scene, and they took over 100 photographs, which again, like, show all the different angles of the crime. So that's where it comes from when I say there's no, I can't find any physical evidence that shows that Allison and Louise were awake because I've seen the 100 photos that were taken. So Butch DeFeo was questioned by investigators from the Suffolk County Police Department for 12 hours. He seemed to be rambling as he talked. He told many different stories as if he was just throwing out different scenarios But one detail that he stuck to was the involvement of the Italian Mafia. During this interview, Butch insisted that they must have been killed by a hitman. And he even knew the name of the hitman. He said his name was Louis Fellini. In this interrogation room, Butch admitted a family secret. His grandfather's car dealership in Coney Island was really a front for the mob. The business was involved in laundering evidence for the crimes of the Lucchese crime family. They would hide evidence in cars that were taken to be crushed, or they would melt weapons down in their body shop. Butch said that for a while, the family had not been happy with his grandfather's reluctance to continue doing this work, or they would complain about it not being done properly. Butch said that he actually got into a fight with Louis Fellini one day at the dealership when he called him an inappropriate name. Okay. I don't want to repeat it. It's gross. So, um, because of this story, the police were initially concerned for the safety of Butch because it seemed like someone wanted to kill the whole DeFeo family. Well, they were concerned until a briefing was had between the detectives who looked over the scene the medical examiner, and those who were present in the interrogation room. The ME stated that all victims were shot with a thirty-five caliber rifle and that when those who investigated the scene noted Butch had a lot of guns in his room, they talked about what had been found. And he actually had a box for thirty-five caliber Marlin rifle, the same weapon that was determined to have been used in the commission of the crime. I mean, that is interesting. I mean, it's not every day that a gun that you find in the residence and ammo that is in the house for that gun is used on the crime to kill everybody in it. Correct. Very strange. And the weapon that had been in the box could not be found anywhere in the house. So it was just an empty box. And just like that, 
the investigation went from protecting Butch to him being the number one suspect. So as police tried to work out what happened, they had to think about this crime scene, which really made no sense. And it was kind of terrifying. The entire DeFeo family, minus Butch, obviously, all died in the same position, on their stomachs in bed. So creepy. How did they not wake up? At first, they were thinking, okay, were they positioned this way? Were they, were they drugged, then brought to bed, and then shot? So that's what one thought process is, because this gun is so loud that there is no way that people did not hear it. Neighbors should have heard this gun go off. It's so loud. Once again... This draws similarities to the Velisca house. And in that episode that we did, I said that there had to have been something that happened where they all experienced some time, some type of like drug that entered everyone's system at around or relatively around the same time but nothing, for them all to be knocked out. But now this is 1974. It's not the early 1900s. And when the autopsies were done and the toxicology reports came back, there was no drugs in the family system. Because this is the thing. Let's let's get very in-depth right now. If everyone was sleeping in our home and someone came in, God forbid, the first target would have to be you and I because we're the ones that would ultimately try to stop it, right? But what but, if we're sleeping? But the one... Well, I'm trying to get to that. If we were... If I was shot first, you would wake up from that gunshot. Then you would be hit, but you would have made noise, which means that whatever kid is next door in the other room would have woken. You would assume. You would assume, right? If if not that child, then the next child would have heard that because another shot would have gone off. So now you got to think. You are in a home. You have three gunshots that have gone off. You're well, not going to wake have- up. Well, when you think about Dawn and Allison, there's been four shots that have been fired. Okay, right. So no matter how big the home is, it doesn't matter. Even if it's just it's a, a gunshot. pistol, you're going to hear it. Okay. Even when we record the podcast, we pick up sound sometimes, unfortunately, from cars passing. Yeah. Our home outside. I right? Know. So imagine, like, just someone shooting a rifle in a home. What would be picked up by our ears? No, it's incredible it's, it's just... as to how the family didn't wait. That is and remains to be the scariest detail of this crime. Even a silenced weapon, which we have no evidence of that. Right there, it says right here, it was determined that the weapon from the like how the shots were fired, there was no silencer on the gun when it was shot. Okay. We've also, I, and I, I love guns, so I know some, like I try to learn a lot about them. But like, even if you were to try to muffle the, the sound of a gun with a pillow, let's say. Right? You're still going to hear it. If yeah. Even if it had a silencer on it with a pillow, you'd still hear it. You're still going to hear it. Yeah, especially it, this you know, one. Because this rifle yeah. is loud. Because a, a lot of people think, oh, it has a silencer. You don't hear anything. That That's false. That's just something that you think because of a movie. Right. But you still hear a gunshot. It's not a crackle. It's not a firecracker going off. But you're still going to hear a pop. Right. So to me, it's very odd that not one of those people in any of those rooms heard any one of them getting killed. I agree with you. Because it had to have happened like one person after the other. One 
then the next two, then the next three, and then the next four, and then the, whoever was still alive would have woken up to that type of noise. I, I completely agree with you. Unless... And there's no answers. Unless there is more than one person that is carrying this out in, in at the same time. Right, but there's still... Even if, and this is a theory that comes up later, that Dawn maybe assisted Butch in the commission of this crime, someone would have still woken woken up. Allison would have yeah. woken up. If Dawn is shooting the parents and Butch is shooting the brothers at simultaneously, and they somehow find a way to have the same weapon, and they shoot it at the same exact time, someone's still waking up. Right? I would be inclined to say yes, but once again, I'm not an expert, but it's just like there is a certain amount of common sense, right, that has to take place where it's like, how do you not wake up? I agree with you. So the police asked Butch to go through his story one more time. He said that he was actually up very late. And another detail that was determined by the medical examiner was that the family died in the early morning hours of November 13th. So when the bodies were found, they had died that morning. They weren't killed the night of the 14th. So it was the morning. They weren't killed the night of the 13th. So they were so killed in the morning. Yes, they had been dead all day. Until someone finally reached... Until Butch apparently found them at 6.30 p.m. Which would make me more inclined to say that if he is the one that did it, he had time to kill them, right? Then go back to the bar. No, 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 no. Go to work. Go to work. And then he's ending up at the bar. Correct. And then saying... Uh, I've been trying leaving. to call them all day. Right, right, exactly. And then that's where he's trying to make his himself an alibi here. Right, but that still doesn't answer the question as to how no one woke up. Correct. There's definitely still some missing pieces here. So the police asked Butch to go through his story again. And he actually was saying that he was up really late the night of November 12th watching TV. And he couldn't go to sleep. So he decided to head into work really early and get some work done. So he left his house, but he had forgotten to take his car keys with him. And because of this, he ended up not being able to get into the car dealership. Because obviously those keys were on the same like key ring as the ones he had for the dealership. So because of this, he just slept in his car. He was awoken by the first employee to get there that morning, um, and he worked as normal. He claimed that when he left the house, he thought his family was sleeping, and he had not heard any commotion. He said that all day at work, and once he got to the bar, like throughout that time, he had tried to call his family. So he tried to call them at work, and he tried to call them at the bar. While he was with his friend and he was at the mall, he didn't have the ability to call them because obviously... There was no such thing as cell phones. So he did attempt to call his family four times throughout the day is what he was saying. But no one picked up. He said finally he chose to leave the bar because he was worried about his family. Because he didn't have his house keys with him, he knocked on the door. No one answered. He saw that his parents' car was still in the driveway. So after a while of them not answering, he chose to break in through the kitchen window. Something that 
he told the detectives at the scene. Once he got in, he found his parents' bodies first. As soon as he saw them, he ran from the house and went back to Henry's to report the fact that they were murdered. That night, the police made a brief media statement regarding the murders. They stated that Ronnie DeFeo Jr. was in protective custody and that he was not considered a suspect at that time. The next day, detectives worked to corroborate Butch's story by interviewing neighbors and employees of the car dealership. One neighbor who was walking their dog around 6 a.m. stated that the third floor lights were on at the Amityville house. They noted that they often walked their dog around this time and lights on the third story were never on that early. Okay. At 6.30 a.m., Butch arrived at the car dealership and parked in front of the service doors. The service manager confirmed that he did wake Butch up when he got there. The same employee also confirmed Butch's story as to why his father, Ronnie Sr., was not at work that day. Ronnie Sr. was the co-service manager. Sounds like a made-up job for a loser son-in-law, if you ask me. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, um, Apparently, he was planning on not being at work that day because he had to take his son, Mark, to physical therapy. Mark had had a recent injury playing football, and he'd been using crutches and a wheelchair, which may explain why, if he heard the shot, Mark wouldn't have been able to physically get out of bed. Okay. If he had an injured leg. The appointment was confirmed by the physical therapist who stated that Mark and his father did not make the appointment. So again, that's evidence that they were killed in the morning. Catherine O'Reilly picked up the three youngest DeFeo children as part of a carpool. She said she drove up to the house in the morning of November 13th as she did every morning. However, the children did not come out. She knocked on the door and got no response. She thought this was strange because both DeFeo cars were in the driveway. Once she dropped her children off at school, Catherine went back to the DeFeo house at around 8.40 a.m. She rang the doorbell again, but she still got no answer. She stated that she was worried and had tried to call again around 5 p.m., but got no response from the family. The mailman noted that when he went to deliver the mail, which was around 10.30 a.m., that he did not hear the family's sheepdog, Shaggy, so cute, barking as he usually did. He thought to himself that the dog must be tied up in the backyard, because that's the only time that he doesn't bark when he's trying to deliver the mail. So he peeked around to look to see if the dog was there, but he wasn't. The autopsies revealed that the family was killed around 3.15 a.m., Now, according to Butch's story that had been corroborated for the most part, that would have meant that Butch was home during the time of the murders. However, he said that he didn't hear anything. This is really interesting. This is actually making it harder to figure out what exactly happened here. (laughs) Right. So he said, and if we have to think about this, if he's saying that he got to the car dealership at 6.30 a.m., that means he would have had to leave his house in Amityville to get to Coney Island at 6.30 a.m. So he would have had to leave his house at, 6, at 5.45. And that's if he took the Southern State Highway. Like, you could also take the Sunrise Highway to get there, but it would take 10 minutes longer. 
So he probably took the quicker way to work. But even if he didn't, he still would have had to have left at 5.55. Meaning he was home at 3.15 a.m. Right. Okay. I see, what you're, I see what you're trying to put together. So if it wasn't him, how would he have survived the attack? Because the boys' room was next to his room. The girls' room was upstairs. So there's no way, if say this was a different killer, they would have just skipped Butch's room. If he was, And he was awake at the time. Butch is saying that he left for work early because he couldn't go to sleep that night. So how are you awake? And A, the killer missed you. And B, you didn't hear a gun go off. Is it possible that he just like let someone else or... Or other people into the residence left as an alibi and let them in? Well, Butch's story changes several times. So we have to go through all the stories before we start to speculate what the heck actually happened. Okay. The detectives confronted Butch with the fact that he would have had to have been home at the time that the crimes were committed. And the fact that his thirty-five caliber was not at the house. And the fact that each victim had powder marks on their bodies indicating that the gun had been in close proximity when fired. And after this, getting this information, Butch changed his story. He said that in the early morning hours, Fellini, so the the mob hitman Louis Fellini, had broken into the DeFeo house and held him at gunpoint. He then forced him to kill his entire family. He claimed that he was forced to kill them and that it had all happened so fast. Once he started, he couldn't stop. He then told the detectives that he was told to throw the weapon into the Amityville River that ran through the back of the house. He then directed them to the location that he placed his bloody clothes and towels in, which was a drainage pipe in Brooklyn. So, like, when he was driving to work, he stopped at a drainage pipe and dumped his clothes and towels. Now, this confession is questioned. There are a few behind-the-scene factors here that I want to talk about. First, the police were overwhelmed by the media presence and people trying to get a look at the house. So, this is the worst thing that has ever happened on Long Island, and it gained a lot of media attention. Even family members that were living in in Amityville at the time, like people that lived in the town, they said that you couldn't even drive anywhere. There were so many cars within Amityville that you were better off walking to the grocery store because you'd get there faster and home faster walking versus driving because of the congestion. Right. People wanting to stop and look at the house. The Suffolk County police also do not have a good track record. They were known in the 70s for their aggression and their specifically aggressive interrogations. They had, this is nuts, a 90% confession rate. Right, and how was that achieved? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, most of them are false confessions because they're beating their suspects. Right, or leaving them there for a very long, extended amount of time, times where they can pretty much break them into confessing so that they can go home (laughs) confessing to get out of there yeah but i think it's pretty obvious that it was butch that did this i mean just saying that happens when a police department 
is doing aggressive interrogations like that sucks but now i mean here the police are in a weird situation where i mean it's like a reverse cry wolf when you get a true confession it's always going to be questioned if you're using questionable interrogation tactics with other people who are innocent right your guilties will always be questioned because you have had false confessions i mean it makes sense and i think that's something that happened here with the defeo trial so on november 20th 1974 just one week after the murders butch was charged with six counts of murder his lawyer tried to have the confession thrown out due to the brutality and all of the other like claims against the suffolk police department but the judge did not throw out the confession but he did tell the defense team that they would be able to argue police brutality during trial. But the defense team was planning on going a different route. Ronnie DeFeo Jr.'s trial began on October 14, 1975. While in custody, Butch changed his story several times. But his defense team settled on the claim that Butch had heard voices that told him to kill his family. Around this time, his attorneys built an insanity defense. The team put a psychiatrist on the stand that stated that Butch had disassociative disorder, as well as a neurotic personality disorder. The prosecution laid it on hard for the jury, laying out Butch's aggressive past, his drug and arrest history, and the fact that his parents had taken him to a psychologist who had, when he was a teen, noted that if Butch did not get any help, the family could end up hurt. They also put another psychiatrist on the stand that stated that Butch did not suffer from disassociative disorder or neurotic personality disorder. Rather, he had antisocial personality disorder. Very different. And the prosecutor hammered home in his closing statement that Butch did know what he was doing because he disposed of the evidence and he tried to make up other stories to cover his tracks. So how can this man be trying to argue an insanity play. I think that the case is really complicated because it doesn't speak to the reality of the fact that how did one man kill six people and no one wake up? Once again, I find it very bizarre that that can take place and there's no evidence that points to a, a, a way of how it happened, right? So like if there's no drugs in the system, you know, if... So, you know, these things aren't present, then really, though, how? I mean, was everyone wearing earmuffs? I mean, I mean like, I know I'm not trying to it's come off like a like an ass, but like... Like insensitive, but like, it's Yeah, true. I don't want to... But it is, like, I mean, were these people wearing earmuffs? Were, you know, how how is that even possible? Well, even if you... I mean, think about... I mean, I don't know if anyone of our listeners has ever been to a gun range, but when you have those headphone like noise canceling headphones on you still hear it right well exactly i mean they're made to muffle and lower the decibels of what's being but people wear them for a reason because guns are loud and if a 35 caliber shot is being shot in your house and if you know anything about guns that their neighbors down the street should have heard that shot you know what let alone someone in a house I would I would even give some credit like like I'll give it some leeway I should say right like okay the first shot you didn't think anything of it maybe you didn't hear it but to hear five more shots 
after the first shot, I find that hard to believe. Yeah. Right? I mean, it. I don't even have an answer to how that's even possible. Unless there, you know, unless he let all, like, some random people in. Like, let's say there were a gang-affiliated, mafia-related, you know. Even then, that means you would have had to have someone in the girls' room, the boys' room, the parents' room. Correct. So there would have had to have been three people in there. Do you really think the mob is so concerned about their weapons being melted down that they're going to kill a whole family? It's not going to happen because I will say, and the Italian mob is known for this, that they don't mess with family members. If anything, Ronnie Sr. would be shot. Not his whole family. And they would have gotten him at work. Like, I mean, do you know what I mean? Like, this isn't a mob hit. This doesn't scream mob hit to me. It doesn't scream mob hit to me, but I mean, I mean, the extent of violence, I mean, you have to think that. I'm not if, saying the mob is capable. Violent. Uh, yeah. I and mean, they're not capable. capable, but they never kill family members. There's not one case of them going to someone's house and killing their wife and children as well. No. I. Especially for I how little. Ronnie Sr. was involved in the mob. Right. I mean, there wasn't that much of, of, like, yeah, no, I know what you mean. I just, I'm trying to figure out if, like, how this is possible. Uh, You know, if they were shot one by one, you would, someone would have woken up. There would have been a bigger scene. Like, maybe someone running out into a hallway. uh, I think. Something. I think that the most, if you were to say there was a lot of other people involved, you would think, okay, maybe Butch had his other friends that were into drugs say, help me, and I'm getting a lot of money from this. That's the only reason why I would think other people would get involved. There is a theory that Dawn got involved. I mean, obviously, um, there's this, and I don't know how true this is because I only read this in one place one of the sources that are going to be listed um butch later ron is going to change his story and say that dawn was involved but that things had gotten too far so the parents were only like he had planned this the commission of this crime with dawn but only the parents were supposed to have been murdered but Dawn took things too far and murdered the siblings as well because she wanted to spare them from like a, a horrible life, like having to deal with what had happened to them with their parents. So once she killed them, she felt so bad that she told Ronnie to kill her in the same way. And there's evidence. The evidence that's supposed to support this is the fact that Dawn apparently has unburnt gunpowder particles on her nightgown, meaning that she fired a gun rather having a gun fired at her. Oh, Okay. But I don't know how reliable, again, that source is. Right, because it's not, it's just one source Correct. that's claiming that detail Yeah. and no nowhere else. So, yeah, I don't know. I, I'll take that with a grain of salt. But I, I, I personally believe that it had to, if we're going to go based on evidence that we can see, I think it's safe to say that it had to have been more than one person, whether it be uh, mob related or he had help or something there's no way one person's gonna go room to room and kill one by one 
and not somebody within that line of, of killing wake up. Right. Well, I also think that it's really bizarre that even the neighbors of the DeFeos stated that they did not hear gunshots. It is bizarre. They did, and they did report that they heard the dog barking that night. So people were up and they heard noise. I don't know if they were up at 3.15 a.m. I mean, most people are sleeping at 3.15, most likely in a deep sleep. So I don't know if they would have heard the shots go off. But I don't know. I just don't think it's feasible that just one person did this. But then at the same time, the same weapon was used on everyone. I can't imagine people getting the same. Like if you're going to have two killers, you usually have two different guns. We've even had the same killer in two different guns. That's true, too. Like, I mean, they're, they're going to these... get identical rifles. See, it's the 70s, right? 74. So, like, I don't know how good, like, like investigation techniques were. Is it possible? No, that... it was the same gun. That... No, 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 no. That's not what I'm saying. That's not where I'm going with it. Is it possible that were these people moved after the fact that they were killed? No, because the way that the blood spatter was on the wall surrounding the bed they were murdered where they were so yeah so then it's it's got plus the plus the you know the bullet goes through the bed right i don't know i just well i do want to close it in saying that on november 21st 1975 one year after his arrest butch defeo was found guilty of six counts of second degree murder and he was sentenced to six concurrent sentences of 25 years to life but again i mean like this man and butch defeo loves to talk trust me he loves giving interviews and he's very uh back and forth about what his story is it were the voices then he said it wasn't voices that told him to do it then dawn helped him with it there's no way like he claims to this day and he's very cryptic in his messages when he talks about it but he says uh there's no way that one person could have done this. And all of you smart people like to say, you know, like look into this crime, but there's no way that you can say that one person did this. And it's, it's, you know, it's kind of true. I mean, yeah, I mean, I lead towards there being more than one person involved, you know, I mean, maybe, maybe that maybe we're overlooking other like parts of this maybe, and we're not catching Something that might be just in our face, but I don't know. I just don't, you know. I mean, listen, listen. Like you said with the whole gun thing, and I and I know you want to shorten it up and everything, but I I just have to add that it is possible for you to go out and purchase the same gun. It's a very easy gun to go buy. I mean, it's not like it's this very like limited uh, special edition gun. You know what I mean? Like you can, if you were planning, listen, if you were in need of money and you had other people that would help you, if you split it with them, it's easy for you to just be like, here, take this money, go buy the same gun. And I already have the ammo for it in the home. Just, just go out and buy the same guns. Right. I, I don't know. I, you know what it is? It's just that it looks like it's more than one person. That's all. And that's really all I can come up with is that there had to have been more than one person in that residence that night or, or I should say, you know, day. No, I completely agree with you. I, I think that it has to be more than. But then like like what you said is that, I mean, I tried to do a different approach to this podcast of other podcasts about the DeFeo murders. When we talk about the horrific abuse that Butch DeFeo faced 
at the hands of his father. And what kind of repercussions are we seeing here of, did he do this? Did he kill everyone because of the emotional and physical abuse that he suffered from his birth until his he was 23 and, and the commissions of these crimes happened? He has all the reasons to want to kill his father. Right. Not to mention, he probably most likely has antisocial personality disorder. He's taking LSD. He's taking heroin. He was drinking. Like, I mean, Jesus, it's it's a recipe for disaster here. And also, he he changed his story multiple times, right? But one of them was that he had his sister help him do this. Yeah. And that he couldn't live, she couldn't live with it, so then he kills her, right? Yeah. So what if, like... She's part of like his other personality, or even further, just to say that like. No, no, not it's not disassociative. It's anti personality. Oh, anti personality. Okay. Well, I was still gonna say that would what be if, crazy. If but he, what if? But what? Seriously, though, that's what where if people thought the voices came from? Yeah, but what if that's his way of like saying that he took everyone else out, even though they were innocent parties in an innocent party in this? But what if he took him up because he didn't want them to suffer the same abuse that he did? Or, yeah, because he knows the emotional toll that his father's abuse has taken on him and what it turned his life into, right? He's now addicted to drugs. He has resorted to trying to steal from his grandfather. And he's like, I don't want this life for my siblings. And that's why he killed them. Right. Even though his aggression was really the father. Towards his father. And maybe the mother for letting it happen. Yeah. I I don't know. He has motive. I think that's the biggest thing is there's definitely, he has motive to kill. And he them. has pulled the trigger on his father before. Right. And so, but Dawn also showed the same aggression. So I don't think it's totally outside of the realm of possibility that Dawn did help him with the crime. And I think it's more likely her than anyone else. So I think that. Either what happened is there, for some bizarre reason, nobody woke up from the gunshots and he killed them all or Dawn helped. I, I, I don't know. Yeah. Or he told his siblings not to get out of bed and then he came back and killed them. They were just as scared of him as they were of his father, which is a terrifying reality as well. That's very true. I don't think we'll ever... No, but I think we can get down to the nitty gritty of like, this is where we stand on yeah. what happened here. It was either him or Dawn helped him. Yeah. And shortly after the trial, like about one year after the trial of Butch DeFeo and his sentencing, which I do just have to mention the fact that Butch DeFeo is sent to Green Haven Correctional Facility and he is housed with, and it's it's so crazy, like if you can imagine these men all together, um, Andre Rand, who become, he, like, he's the cropsy guy from Staten Island, and uh, Arthur Shawcross, who's, you know, like Genovese River, River Killer, like they were all in jail together, which is so crazy. That is crazy, actually. Yeah. Um, so I just I thought that was really interesting that they were in, in jail. And um, Son of Sam was there for a short period of time as well. So just nuts. It is. Yeah. Now, George and Kathy Lutz buy the property about a year after the trial takes place 
for $80,000. Oh, my God. I would move into that house for $80,000. I would not. John, a three-story, five-bedroom house on Long Island, on the shores of Southern Long Island, for $80,000. Nope. Sorry. I'm not doing it. You wouldn't do it? No. No. Because... Would you live in the boathouse while I lived in the house? No. Not even the boathouse? I wouldn't want to be on the property. And my reason for that is, uh, once again, I know we're getting a little off a true crime topic here, but just know that I'm the type of person where I believe that there is energy that lingers, whether it's good, bad, whatever. And that is a very toxic environment in that home. And that never goes away. Well, I'm. it's interesting that you say that because George and Kathy Lutz buy the house a year after the trial goes down. And they say that they can't even spend one whole month in the house because of the demonic activity that was existing, right? And that's what creates the Amityville horror that we love and know today because, you know, America was really ripe for a good haunting story because we were just reeling from, like, The Exorcist and, like, we needed another one, right? So could it be true? Could the energy have just been moved from... The killing of the DeFeos, which basically had just happened by the time Kathy and George move in, and they experience it because they were the next people in the house, but then it dissipated by the time that someone bought it from them. Hard to say. Because nobody else has said, and and several owners have owned the house after the Lutzes did, that they experienced any ghost activity. Once again, it's hard to say. We don't know what happens some people don't even believe in in ghosts and spirits and energy and all that stuff i'm just saying though there is it is just something it's a scar you know it's like a scar it's like you know that people died in every single room of those houses that you're going to sleep in that is something that is makes any person i think uneasy whether or not you believe in ghosts or not it's just a very uneasy environment I would not like that, and I wouldn't want it no matter if it was a dollar. I wouldn't even buy it if it was a dollar. I mean, two parents died, right? They were 43, 42, and then children died from the ages of 18 to 9. I mean, John was only 9 years old when he was killed in that house, so it's just so sad that their lives were taken, and you have to know that in every bedroom except for one bedroom in that house, two people were murdered. Right, and that's why I'm saying... That that's just not you know. How could that not be a ghost story? How can there not be residual energy in there? Like I don't know. But once again, some people don't believe it, and that's okay if you don't. But I think just the idea of even if you don't believe in ghosts doesn't matter. It's just like okay, people die in the house. Do you really want that? Do you want to live in a house where people died like that? No, I don't think anybody wants to buy a home where they've been viciously murdered. And you're going to have to go sleep in that house. I'm sorry. I'm not with it. No, I completely agree with you. I think that it's... Uh, there's no way there can't be residual energy from the murders of all of these people. And not just the murders, but the abuse that took place before the murders. Right. And I also don't want to be like that tinfoil hat person. You know. Yes, and, you do. You love it. <laughs> I mean, I do. But I mean, but I you have to respect the people that don't believe in, in stuff like this. But there's just no way I'd feel comfortable. Like my moral obligation is to not live in a house where people died. And like, you know, I don't know. There's like almost like you're not respecting it. I don't know. That's it's interesting. 
Yeah, I mean, that's just my take on it. Well, that's our whole take, actually, on the Amityville Horror Murders. Yeah. And we hope you enjoyed it. We hope that we we shared a lot this episode. We shared a lot. Super emotional. And I actually think this is one of the longest episodes I think that we've done. Yeah, very cathartic. I liked it. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll see you soon. Bye, guys. Bye, guys.